Today on the show, I sit down with Simran Carr and speak about nonviolent communication. A very interesting talk. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Please continue to do this by sharing it with a friend. If you know someone that you think would benefit from this, please share it with them. This is how you can help me get the word out. You can also go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. And uh, this helps as well. If you're enjoying the content that I'm providing for you, please make a donation. Go to thestoryofmepodcast.com, and on the contact page, there's a donate button. Make a contribution to help continue to support this podcast. Again, you can send me your questions and connect with me on all social media at thestoryofmepodcast.com website. Okay, now let's get to it. Beautiful am I Bountiful am I Blissful am I Waheguru Beautiful am I Welcome to the story of me with Amarjit Singh. This is where my guests and I share personal stories from our life and explore the psychological insights that were learned from these experiences. Each story will entertain you, as well as increase your understanding of your own psychological patterns. Then, through the principles of yoga psychology, you will learn how to overcome the resistance that is holding you back from living a more fulfilling life. Join me every Tuesday for a new episode, where I share my experiences in psychological understanding, interview guests, and answer listener questions. Now let's get started with the podcast that awakens your inner power through awareness and understanding. Welcome to the show. For those of you who are new, my name is Amarjit Singh and I am your host. And for old listeners, welcome back. It's good to have everyone here today. I hope everyone is doing well. Uh, today on the show, I sit down with Simran Carr, who is a yogi and also a teacher of nonviolent communication. Nonviolent communication is a system designed by Marshall Rosenberg to help people learn how to communicate better to really connect and understand the other person's needs. This is the intention behind it. It's not necessarily to avoid disagreements, but to understand the needs of the other person, which in, in turn helps you relate better to that person and then uh, get past the disagreements. But it is a very effective way to learn how to communicate, not only to have better connections with the people in your life, but really to communicate with yourself and to understand your own needs. So it's a really helpful tool for self-awareness. And I highly suggest it. And our guest today, Simran Carr, is a certified trainer for nonviolent communication and also the founder of the Hamburg Institute for Nonviolent Communication. I first met her, I think it's about 15 years ago, when I attended one of her workshops in France at the European Yoga Festival. She has a very interesting story on how she arrived at nonviolent communication as her expertise, and we had a really lovely talk. 
she's a very interesting person and has had many different experiences that she shares today on the podcast that I think you're really going to enjoy. Now, she does these trainings in Germany, and uh, they're done only in German. She speaks uh, several languages, but she teaches this only in German. And if you're in Germany and or you speak German, you could attend her workshops on nonviolent communication. And she also teaches a 21 Stages of Meditation course with her husband. And her website is higfke.de, and that's her personal website. And then she has a website for her training she does with her husband on the island of Peros, Greece, uh, for the 21 Stages of Meditation. And this is 21-stages.de. But for the rest of the listeners, uh, for English speaking, or no matter which language you, you speak, there's the international website for the Center of Nonviolent Communication. And this is cnvc.org. And I really suggest that if you are interested in improving your communications and understanding the needs of yourself and of others through your communications, get the book Nonviolent Communication, A Language of Life by Marshall Rosenberg. And I'll put all the links in the episode notes. So you can go to the website, thestoryofmepodcast.com for the show notes or, or whichever uh, device you're listening on, you can go to the episode description and there will be links to the book and also to Simran Carr's website. So now I'd like to share the lovely conversation that I had with Simran Carr. Satnam. Satnam. Welcome uh, to the podcast, and thank you for joining me today, Simran. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, you know, I encountered you, I'd say met, but we didn't really formally meet. I encountered you about, I think it's about 15 years ago now. It was my first time I went to the European Yoga Festival. That's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was. And uh, it was interesting. You're the first workshop that I went to, and you were teaching nonviolent communication, which I had never heard of. And in fact, I was just really getting started with Kundalini Yoga in, in this community. And one of the things that I found really fascinating about you is one, I, I when I look at you, I can't, I just thought you were German. You know, I, I don't know why I, I thought this. And for those, well, for those <laughs> well, for those listeners who who don't know about the the European Yoga Festival, it's people that come from all over the world in many different countries, and they give workshops. And so, in one workshop, you may have ten different countries being represented by the people that are attending the the workshop. And so, sometimes you have translators. And at your workshop, there wasn't a formal translator because most it, the workshops are taught in English, but some people don't have the, the, an excellent grasp on English, so you have to translate words here and there. And you, I don't know how many languages you translated into. I think it was at least three or four. And the thing that I found the most interesting is that I know at this time I was learning Spanish because I was living in Spain. And I know when people speak a, another language that's not their native tongue, their voice changes. It goes higher, or it, 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 the, the cadence is different. 
and you changed languages in mid-sentence to two or three different languages, and your voice didn't change <laughs> from any of the languages. Okay. How, how is that possible? How, are, are, did you grow up just learning languages? or how, how many languages do you speak? Let's begin there. Okay, I speak five languages. And what, what are they? This German, of course, and English, and then Spanish, and French, and Dutch. Okay. Yeah, no I, Greek? Do you, no, do, do you, no, no, that's a difficult one. Okay. For some reason, I remembered Greek, but maybe this is from what you, what you were saying about your workshops in Greece. Right, right. But no, um, <laughs> did you learn these languages at a young age, or did you pick them? How did you pick them up? Or maybe we should start with where you were born. Yes, that's that's exactly the secret. <laughs> I was born yeah. in Colombia in South America, and, th and that's where I learned uh, Spanish. My parents were German, and they lived in Colombia, and... Uh, Naturally, I also learned Spanish. Okay. So right. growing up with two languages opens the kind of opens the door to learn more languages. It was totally easy for me to learn English. And then French. I had a French boyfriend for two years, and that helps. <laughs> uh -huh. And then I married a Dutch guy, and that helps too. So <laughs> yeah, but, that's but, the answer. Yeah, I mean, okay, I, I've dated Spanish girls, and my Spanish is really poor. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if this is this is the the only thing. You yeah, know, I people. Don't know. Who, the, the French guy I was with, he didn't learn any German. So, <laughs> <laughs> and this would be like me. But you you have a good grasp for languages. Right? I guess I do. Yeah, I guess I do. Do you play an instrument? Well, I, I did learn piano and cello when I was in school, but uh, I never really enjoyed it. And then and I played the flute also. And then now and then later I learned the harmonium to play mm -hmm. some shabbats and to go with the mantras. But also that's not my favorite thing to do anymore since quite a while. And now I'm actually learning to play the handpan. Okay, but you you have a good ear is what I'm getting at. People who are good at languages, I've learned, have good ears. And they're good. At, and if yes. you have a good ear, you're te you tend to be good with musical instruments. That could be. Yeah, I never paid too much attention to that, but that could be, yes. Yeah, whenever I meet someone that speaks several languages and speaks them well, I always ask them, do you play an instrument? And they always say, oh, I play this or this. Because yeah. the, they say the most difficult part of learning a language is training your ear to hear the rhythms. This is why babies mimic by the sound and why if you hear someone speaking Chinese, it, it, you can't tell one, one word from the other because it just sounds the same until yeah. your ear grows accustomed to it. And so people who have good ears tend to be good at languages. By the way, I tried to learn Chinese and I gave up. I said, <laughs> it was too tough. Too tough. That's so yeah. different. The whole mindset behind it is so different. Same with Punjabi. I tried to learn Punjabi and I said, forget it. No, no way for me. They, they say the people who speak Chinese use the, the, the part of the brain uh, responsible for language. They use more of the space than any other language. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, I, I mean, you have to learn at least I remember something like 10,000 or 15,000 signs to yeah. be able to read a simple text. 
Yeah, well, yeah. I, I studied Japanese, and you had to learn about 10,000, and I got up to, a, yeah. I think I got up to about yeah. 500, and that, this yeah. was enough for me. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but but Japanese is actually easier to speak because they don't have an accent and they don't have the tones. And in the in the uh, script, in the, in the way it's written, it says how the things are being pronounced. While in Chinese, yeah. you also have to learn that with each sign. Yeah. Yeah, that, it's, it's I mean, difficult. It, I, I decided, no, I'm not going to become a Chinese bookworm. But, but, but I also <laughs> learned, too, that people who speak either German or Russian, because these languages are difficult, they, they have a better capacity to learn languages. When I lived in Spain, there was a lot of German people in my Spanish class. And after like two weeks, they were speaking Spanish already. I felt like I had missed uh, some classes. <laughs> And then I found out why when I moved to Germany and I tried to learn German. And German is a difficult language uh, as far as grammar. The pronunciation for Americans, I think, is not so difficult. But the grammar... The grammar I mean, just is the, impossible. Didn't, just Mark Twain, a, didn't Mark Twain say life is not long enough to learn German? Something like that. <laughs> well, I would agree with this. When they got to the numbers, instead of saying 25, you say 5 and 20. I said, what are you doing here? What is this? And so this was difficult, not to mention you have the feminine and masculine and, and uh, all the, neutral. All the, all the yeah. twists of it. Yes, I, I agree. I agree. I'm glad I don't need to learn German. <laughs> and so, so your family uh, moved from Colombia to Ger Germany. Yes. And then you grew up and spent the rest of the time there, or yeah. did you move around? No, 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 I didn't move around. I, well, from South Germany to North Germany. Okay. I, my parents moved to South Germany when I was 11, and I went to school there and did my exams and all that in uh, South Germany, and then I moved to Hamburg, and that's okay. where I live since. Yeah. And so, and yeah, Hamburg is really my, my hometown. Yeah, I like Hamburg. Hamburg's really nice. Yeah, what what did you study when you were in school? Did you have any specialization in your studies? Yes, I when when I went went to university. I mean, the system was a little different then than it's now. But um, I went to university and I studied uh, German and geography and uh, pedagogic, okay, uh, child rearing or whatever mm. this, and to become a teacher of uh, a high school teacher. And did you do this? Uh, no. <laughs> I I could not stand being in the school and supporting that system. I find that system so life alienating. I mean, I mean, just realize the way schools are set up. They are modeled after the Prussian military trainment. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's how how the system where it's changing a bit. Thank. Thanks God, but uh, the origins origins of the school is really the training, obedience, put the wisdom in the heads, and the children have to learn this. And it's not important what they want to learn, what they're interested in. That's not the important thing. It's what they're supposed to be learning. And that was totally against my my uh, my nature. And did you grow up in a family of, of yogis or of people no. who were no? No, 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 not at all, not at all. No, no they they were ordinary Germans. I mean, maybe not 
that ordinary. My mother was interested in, in nature a lot, so she joined the Green Party and became a member in the Green Party and did politics there and that kind of stuff. So my parents were kind of liberal, open to all sorts of things, but definitely nothing that was spiritual or anything like that. So, And so how did you get involved with yoga? And at about what age did you start to get involved with this? Actually, I, I started searching for the meaning of life really consciously when I was about 16. I started to think like, what is life about? It can't be about making a career, building a house, having children. And is that the meaning of life? Is that the, I was, no, <laughs> no way. <laughs> and so I, I was looking and then I um, joined different uh, groups who were active in like protesting against the society, against the, like there was a um, uh, traffic, uh, and how to say, it, public transportation fee rise, and mm. we did a lot of demonstrations against that and organized uh, alternative ways of transportation and that kind of stuff. So I got involved in these uh, things, but that didn't satisfy my search for the meaning of life. It just satisfied my rebellion against the normal society. Mm. And, well, it's a long story, of course. <laughs> in the end, I, um, well, I lived in Hamburg already, and I lived in different communes, and I went to Christiania, I don't know if you know that, in uh, Denmark, in Copenhagen. No. There was a large community of alternative people and hippies and dropouts and also druggies and everything, and they lived a free way of life. I like that. <laughs> I I went there as often as I could for a while. And then I went traveling in the United States. Actually, I went traveling first in Guatemala and Mexico. Mexico. Mm -hmm. And from there, uh, hitchhiking up uh, to um, Arizona and then over to California. And I met some. That's where I met my French boyfriend. In about <laughs> what year was this? You were doing this, this traveling. Um. 78, okay. something like that. Oh, yeah. This is when our family moved to Arizona in 78. Oh, see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then uh, in, in California, I met these people who did the um, rebirthing. Okay. And um, we just, we're just travelers, you know, my French boyfriend and me, we're just hitchhiking throughout uh, America. And so we stumbled into them and they said, welcome, and we need some people we can practice with. Why don't you have some sessions with us? And so I had a, a rebirthing session, and I re-experienced my own birth, and that was quite extraordinary. It was very, like, mind-blowing that that is possible. Mm. And that's when I decided, because that before I had had two abortions that were really painful and horrible, and I realized that I was just playing with my body and using my body for sex to get mm. the um, appreciation, but not as the sacred thing as it is. Mm. And I was not respecting my body. I realized that then through this experience of my own birth, and I decided to become a midwife for natural birth. 
Okay. But then first we continued hitchhiking through the United States and Canada, and I re returned to Hamburg and wanted to learn how I can become a, a, a midwife for natural birth. But then I realized I would have to go three years work in a hospital to get the education for to get the training for for a midwife and I realized no way mm -hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't survive that <laughs> so um, then I was just looking for other ways how I could get into working with birth because that was the one thing that I had found which really made sense for me if I can support women who are about to have a baby to realize how sacred that is and to accompany them, to support them, to have a birth that is really like, like, a, like a, a sacred thing. That, that was really I wanted to, something I wanted to, to uh, bring into life. And so I, was con I continued to look for that kind of thing and I met these people, women who started uh, yoga for... Uh, birth preparation and it turned okay. out it was Tantaranka. <laughs> okay you know and she yeah. had started a, a group of women who uh, offered workshops for pregnant women to prepare for the delivery with yoga and then also uh, during yoga, during the birth how to breathe and all that and also after the birth how to take care of the baby correctly and, and, and in a way that really supports mother and baby best and that kind of stuff. So I was very fascinated by that. I still finished my first exam for university and then I did that training. I started that training. And at the same time, I started, I want, oh yeah, I had done another travel to Egypt and then there I had decided to start uh, being a vegetarian. Okay. Because the meat in Egypt was just like, <laughs> so it was an easy decision. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, then I came back and I was looking for if, if I could work. I wanted to learn to cook vegetarian. And I thought, let me look for a vegetarian restaurant where I can learn to cook vegetarian. So I found the Golden Temple restaurant here in Hamburg. It mm -hmm. existed then still. And asked if I could uh, have a job there. As, as a cook, I thought, but of course, I couldn't have a job as a cook right away, but as a waitress, at least. Okay. And then I had the good food every day. It was really perfect. And then it turned out that the people who ran the Golden Temple restaurant were the same people, the same group who started this uh, natural birthing group. So, And then they told me, if you work here in the restaurant, you can go to our yoga classes for free. Mm. And I thought... Yoga. Oh, I've I've done yoga. I did some hatha yoga before, and it was so boring. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to say, but yeah. I was bored out of my bones. I was really like, Ugh. but then I thought, okay, if it doesn't cost anything, I I can uh, I can try. Mm -hmm. And it was it turned out to be a totally different experience. It was Kundalini yoga, and I, I it just immediately thought, wow, this is a different thing. And I was looking for a replacement for my Aikido group. I had been doing Aikido. Okay. And that while I was traveling in Egypt, that group had dissolved. So then uh, um, when I came back, I was looking for something that could replace that because I wanted to do something with my body. 
And then I realized it could be yoga. And then I found all these threads coming together mm. in the ashram. And then I did this training for uh, natural birth. And part of that training is that you accompany a woman in the birth, during the birth, and then afterwards you take care of that person for 40 days. And so the, you do all the household work and all that, so the mother can really have all her attention with the child and also recover from the birth, which is like, that's a heavy thing, I mean, <laughs> for yeah, the body. I can imagine. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so then there was one woman in the ashram who was pregnant, and she asked me if I could uh, do that for her, the 40 days, if I could do that for her. And I thought, well, yeah, then why don't I move into the ashram? They asked me if I want, want to, and I moved in the ashram. And then I did the, uh, the, uh, I, the service for her, the seva, and also the 40 days after. And during that time, I tried out to work her. And then I tried out to do, join the sadhana every morning at uh, 4 o'clock. They started then <laughs> really <laughs> early. But I was totally dedicated and into it. And so then, uh, yeah, I moved out after the 40 days again, but I thought I want to stay, I want to stay connected. So then for half a year, I went back and forth between where I lived in, uh, in a different part of uh, Hamburg Every morning at three o'clock, I three o'clock in the morning, I got up, got on my bike, went over to the ashram, did the sadhana, did uh, everything, worked in the restaurant, went back home, went back to the ashram for uh, yoga, went back to sleep, went back to the ashram. So it was like, <laughs> yeah, about, was old. how old were you at this time? At that time, I think I was twenty. 27, 26, okay. or, yeah, 26, 27, something like that. Right. Okay. And then, of course, I went to the yoga festival with the, with the ashram. I moved into the ashram then, and we went to the yoga festival. All right. And, then, and I told myself, okay, I'm going to give myself half a year, and after half a year, I'm going to check, is this really the right thing for me to do, live in the ashram and really become a yogi? Okay. <laughs> and then after half a year, I... Asked myself, and I realized, well, if I stop now, that's really silly. Because mm -hmm. I'm really only at the beginning right now. I'm really only starting to understand what that does to me. And doors are opening and rooms are opening in me. I'm really understanding so much more about life. It would be totally crazy to stop. So I decided, okay, I'm going to put my whole life on this card and go. <laughs> and that's what I did. And then at the yoga festival, I met my husband, and a year later, we married at the yoga festival. <laughs> well, that's nice. That's a nice story of how you met. And so, wow, you've been in this community a very long time. That's you right. Must have, you must have seen it. I mean, now the festival, well, the before it ended, you know, stopped. The festival was getting quite big. When you first went, it must have been very small. We, we were just like, when I first came, it was 120 people. Wow. And we already thought, wow, is this is a big group. <laughs> yeah, but that must have been nice too, to, to you know, a little more intimate and, and probably get to spend more time meeting yeah. people and sitting with people. And you knew everybody. Yeah. You got to know everybody. And after a week, you were friends with everybody or you knew this, this person I don't like. So, but <laughs> you, you knew them, you know. Now yeah, with 3,000 people 
it's hard. It's impossible to know. Yeah. I think what, the first year I went, like I said, it was about 15 years ago. I think then it was maybe 1,000 to 1,200 people or 1,300, somewhere around mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. and, and that was still big, but it, it, was, it was interesting because, you know, the first day they say, okay, who's come here more than 20 years, stand up. And, and when you're the first time you see this, you say, wow, what are these people mm -hmm. doing every year, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and now I go, well, 15 years I've been going, or actually yeah. more, I, I think yeah. it's, 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 quite, it's quite interesting. But yeah, it's getting bigger, and the, of course the dynamics change, and, yeah. and this is the, yeah. you know, life. And so how did you then get into nonviolent communication? Well, that's a long story, too. Okay, we have time. <laughs> okay. um, my husband and me, we were living in our apartment here, and we have a yoga center downstairs. And um, Yogi Bhajan uh, used to come to Hamburg about once a year, sometimes only every second year. And then uh, the ashram had dissolved, and um, Tantaran Singh and Tantarka had moved to a different part of the city, and Yogi Bhajan came there to visit for some time. But then they also moved out of Hamburg. So then when Yogi Bhajan came back to Hamburg, they, he lived with us. He stayed with us. And then I think it was the second time or the third time, it must have been the third time when he came um, I mean, I don't know if you ever experienced what happens when he comes to, to a private place. No, what, tell me, what was this it, like? It was just like the whole world stands upside down. Like I took three months in advance to prepare our apartment. And I had a staff, I, I recruited from our yoga students, a staff of 20 people to help me to prepare everything, to get the kitchen right, to clean every inch of our apartment to move the furniture to really get everything set so it, it would be perfect for him and uh, then when he arrived he didn't arrive just by himself of course not no there was a whole entourage there was like i don't know 20 people were traveling with him and not of course not all of them stayed in our house but three of them at least stayed in our house also so we were cramped in one corner or in the beginning we even went downstairs to stay in our yoga center <laughs> left the whole apartment to him and um it was one that that time and our kitchen is large that's wonderful so we were sitting in the kitchen and he was there and he was lecturing in the kitchen with like 30 people in the kitchen <laughs> it was mm -hmm. like Fact, that kind of situation. In that situation, my sister called. And my sister, I have two sisters. This is the middle one. I'm the oldest. And uh, the middle one, she always used to do things that, uh, how, how would I put this? She was a, a freedom fighter. She went to Nicaragua to help with the revolution there. She went to New York to... Uh, help uh, in the slums to feed the poor. She went to Colombia, also to Bogota, to work with the padre in the slums there. Then she, uh, and she wanted, she was considering to, to become a nun of the little sisters of Jesus. I don't know if you remember those. Uh, they live with the poor, they work with the poor. And okay. they, you don't notice that they're sisters. 
that kind of stuff. She was really into that. And at that time, she was helping refugees who had come to Germany from uh, Kosovo, from the Serbian war, mm-hmm. and uh, had housed uh, refugees in her home. And she had gone to Kosovo and to uh, Serbia to work in a refugee camp. And she had just come back from there and was traveling through Hamburg and asked if she could stay with me at that moment when Yogi Bhajan was in our house. Mm-hmm. And our relationship had always been kind of like she was reproaching me, sometimes openly and sometimes just with her looks. She was reproaching me that I was just this party girl and I was just this hippie and now I was running after this yogi. What was I doing with my life? You know, and she mm-hmm. was doing the real good work and I was just, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so every time I had to do with her, I was like, I would say now I kind of made my aura strong so mm-hmm. nothing would penetrate my aura. <laughs> so she could not attack me. And um, so then she called and asked if she could stay with me for a few days. And I said, well, the house is really full. Yogi Bhajan is here. I'm not sure if you if you really want to do that. I can make a space for you somewhere, but uh, it's really going to be full. And she said, oh, no problem, I'll come. And so I thought, mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> and so she came and she sat in the kitchen and listened to Yogi Bhajan giving his lecture and, and people trying to catch his attention and on this whole uh, thing that is always going around him. Mm-hmm. And um, I saw her kind of shrink and go back and go back. And then finally she asked me if, she, if there was a room where she could kind of uh, retire and, and get out of this. And I said, okay, yeah, you can be in my bedroom and I'll come and give you some stuff, whatever you need in a moment. And then she, I showed her the bedroom and she went there and I made my aura strong. <laughs> <laughs> and then I came to her and I was ready to receive the next reproach. But instead, she started to say how difficult it was for her to experience the situation in the kitchen with the people trying to get the attention of Yogi Bhajan and everything only going around Yogi Bhajan. While in her, there were all these images of what she had experienced in the refugee camp and the really horrible situation that the people were in, in in Serbia and in uh, Croatia and in Kosovo and what she had experienced there and how, and the way she was saying it, I noticed that she was almost giving me that reproach that I was just superficially trying to be on my ego trip or something, but she stopped herself and she again started to talk about herself, how difficult that was to keep those two realities in her heart and alone just that just that she was trying to not criticize me that touched me so much and I could tell her that yes I could totally understand that and that for me what happened in the Kosovo in 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 those countries was touching to me too and moving me too and it was important to me too and I tried to keep that both alive so it was kind of the first time we understood each other and we could cry together. It was the first time. Oh. I was I cried mainly for relief and she cried because she was so anxious. <laughs> but we <laughs> cried together, you know. It was it was good. We were not fighting anymore. 
And then, of course, uh, I found out that Marshall Rosenberg was behind that. She had gone to some uh, workshops with him and really tried to apply nonviolent communication in the communication with me. Oh, wow. So <laughs> that's how I ran into that. And then I became really curious and I wanted to learn more about that. And I went to workshops with, with Marshall Rosenberg and other trainers. And then because I had been translating for or interpreting for uh, Yugi Bhajan, I offered to also interpret for Marshall Rosenberg because he, as a native American uh, English speaker, he didn't speak yeah. any, he knew a few German words, but that didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so I offered and yeah, I, I got the job and I uh, translated for him. I interpreted for him because if you interpret for Yugi Bhajan, you can interpret anybody. <laughs> <laughs> his his English was very very special, and you really had to pay attention what he was saying to be able to make sense yeah. of that. And so it was easy for me to uh, interpret for Marshall Rosenberg, and we had a lot of fun doing that. So that I did a few years. Every time he came to Germany and was in North Germany, then I translated for him, and that was that. That was a really really great gift for me because, you know, when you Interpret for somebody once, it goes in the ear and out the mouth, and it's gone. Mm. <laughs> but if you translate the same workshop several times, something sticks to your head, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's got to be a difficult task. I know I've tried to do it with friends, not not in front of a group, but just with friends at the festival who didn't speak English well. And it's really difficult, and especially, yeah. <laughs> like you said, with Yogi Bhajan, where he's probably speaking about a lot of abstract ideas and using a vocabulary that's probably pretty uh, colorful and creative yes yeah. very creative yeah and so so this is challenging and so yeah. this was your journey then to to nonviolent communication and yeah. how you got started with yeah. this and, yeah. and does, does your sister still study it or teach it or well she became quite a known trainer for nonviolent okay. communication but then she got into uh some other teachings and more uh, trauma release oriented uh, things. And she's doing other things now. Okay. She's not into that anymore, but she, I did, I took some trainings with her also actually. Mm-hmm. And I, it was not so easy to take trainings from your younger sister. Quite <laughs> a challenge for your ego. I tell you. <laughs> yeah. It's got to be challenging, right? <laughs> it was a bit challenging. Yes. But it was helpful anyway. I learned quite a few things from her. And then uh, I went to other trainers too. And uh, then in 2004, I became certified as a trainer myself. And ever since then, that's what I mostly do. And this is your, your focus. Yeah. Okay, so now we're at this point of your journey, getting getting to this point. And, and it must have been great to be able to learn with the, the person who came up with this, this system. Right. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. this is you're not getting it watered down. You're not getting it from someone who listened to to him speak. And and I've watched some YouTube videos of, of him. He had a pretty good sense of humor. He seemed oh, to, he like was so funny. He was yeah. Because so <laughs> I thought, OK, he, I think there was a YouTube video of him teaching at a, a corporation or something like this. And I thought, OK, I've worked in corporations. This is probably going to be boring. But he was quite funny and oh, yeah. had, had a really good sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so now, for the listeners, I, I think let's turn to from your background now to to really something about nonviolent communication because I think 
especially, I mean, you could probably say this at any time, but especially now it seems like communication is, is a big issue. Uh, it, it, I, I, especially with social media, you know, I know you're not on social media and you're lucky and, uh, and I'm on it reluctantly. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think if I didn't do what I'm doing now, I, I wouldn't be on it at all because it's not a good way to communicate. It, it no. really isn't. Actually, communication by itself is not the problem. What the what is the problem is the attitude people bring towards themselves and towards life and towards each other. As long as you have images of who the other person is and what uh, and you have judgments about the other person and you have like stereotypes and you only relate to the stereotypes and to the images that you have of the other person, the communication you can you can try to apply nonviolent communication. It won't work. It, it won't work. Well, this this no. is the thing, and I I don't know so much. I'm sure it happens in other countries, but I can see it here in the U.S. Is people want to think of someone as good or bad? You mm-hmm. know, okay, this person mm-hmm. did one thing bad; they're a bad person. Mm-hmm. Or this mm-hmm. person did one thing good; they're a good person. But then we find out they did one thing bad, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And People are more complex than this. It's it's Absolutely. not so simple, and, and and we try to. I think people do this. I, I think part of it is because they don't want to think, and the other part is because they want to punish. You know, it's, it's kind of how they look at themselves. You know, they think this person did some something bad. If I did that, I would not be a good person. And mm-hmm. and I think it's a lot of projection. I think it turns yes, out to and, be, and and there's a lot of fear behind it. Yeah. Like like if they would look at the human humaneness of a person who did something bad in in Turkey, if they would look at the humaneness and the good reason why the person did this horrible thing, they might be confronted with their own feelings that they had to push away as children. Mm-hmm. And the their own loneliness and their own pain of not being accepted and all that. And if they were not accepted as children for something that they did and that was uh, labeled as a mistake and they were punished for that, then what they learn is I'm bad because I did that mistake and that part needs to be shut away. And if I am strong and I can set the rules, I am allowed to punish people who do the same mistake or any kind of mistake. So this is really... This is why Marshall Rosenberg said violence begins in the head. Oh, it definitely. In the, in the, yeah. With the thoughts. It begins with the way that we judge each other in ourselves. Well, this is where communication begins. And this is the biggest <laughs> problem with communication is people have difficulty listening and they have difficulty processing and they just talk. And, yeah. and, and those are the three yeah. kind of components of, of communication, right? Mm-hmm. Is first you have to listen to what is being said, and then how do you interpret that based on your own karma, based on your own habit patterns, and based on the intention of the person and your intention, and then how to communicate in a nice way, you know, with this nonviolent communication. And it's it's a strange. It's not a nice. It's not a nice way necessarily. It's an honest way. Okay, a way without judgment, a way without judgment. Maybe this is a better way of saying it, right? Right. Right. And and, and that tends to be a nicer way. But it's it's, it's without judgment. But you see a lot of the the things that are going on today, and I don't know if it's narcissism 
or it's just their education, but people take everything that it's an offense to them. And so the first step of communication, listening, they're not listening. They're just reliving some trauma they've had or waiting to yell at this person or say something to this person. And, you know, I was talking about this the other, on, on another podcast you know, if we look at this cancel culture that's going on, mm-hmm. who is doing it is the, the this generation that I don't know how it was in, in Europe, but in the United States, it was the the no tolerance, zero tolerance kids. And so they issued this zero tolerance, you know, you not you can't bring a gun to to school. But even if you have a keychain in the shape of gun, no tolerance, you're kicked out of school and they would do this. And and uh and so this is the education they gave these these kids. And so mm-hmm. now we're reaping the, the 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 I don't know if you want to say rewards of it, but the effects of it that now they're trying to cancel people who for any reason because they grew up with this way. And if this is the education you're giving the children, what happens when they become adults? And now I think we're seeing this. Yes. Actually in my understanding this is a form of uh, what in Germany we call the black pedagogic. How would you say? I, I'm not sure with the right pronunciation of pedagogic. Pe- Is it's like, it like the teaching? The child yeah. rearing. Okay. Peda- pedagogic. I'm, I must look that word up in English. I forgot <laughs> what it is in English. It's the black. Uh, black pedagogic means it's um, the child rearing where, where the greatest value is obedience yeah mm-hmm. and where where children are uh, formed after an image how they should be and that was especially in the uh, time of uh, the nazis that was mm. the way children were supposed to be educated were supposed to be raised by forcing them to do things by punishing them really badly if they did things that they were not supposed to do and by training them with and the punishments were things like not looking in their eyes Mm -hmm. not giving them any food not allowing them to move what this kind of really horrible stuff you know and that was the normal ways of uh, of punishment and zero tolerance yeah zero tolerance for anything that was a little different I mean, to to have no tolerance towards guns, I can go with that. But yeah. I mean, to have to have something that is in the form of a gun, or yeah, yeah. Well, that doesn't I, make I, I just use that as an example. But it was for anything. If it was, the, if that was the rule, there's no tolerance. Even if the intention was, you know, to to save someone, to help someone. If you broke the rule, that was it. You're kicked out of school. Right, and that is like the punishment thinking. Yeah, that is a really strong form of uh, of violence. Well, this and, is what we're seeing now today because yeah. of these. These are the kids who are running these companies. Yes. So the, the, the way with nonviolent communication would be to sit down with that child, not in front of everybody else, mm-hmm. but just one-on-one, and talk with that child and say, it's interesting that you cut that in the form of a, of a gun. I guess a gun means a lot to you. huh? And mm-hmm. try, try to understand what is the good reason why the child did that. And then if you understand the, the good reason, I mean, the needs 
in the words of the nonviolent communication, the needs. What is the need behind that? And maybe this child is needing some protection. Maybe this child is needing some understanding for the difficult situation it experiences at home, or maybe somebody is bullying the child and it wants to be able to defend itself or something like that. And if you understand yeah. that, then you can help the child find a different way to defend himself. Yeah, yeah, but then we have to really address the, one of the, the bigger problems is the person who's supposed to be communicating this. Yes, that is a bigger <laughs> problem, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, because there was a, there was a documentary, I, I talk about this a lot. It was called The War on Children, The War, mm -hmm. War on Kids, and it was about mm -hmm. 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it, it interviewed, you know, all these situations that were going on then. Mm -hmm. And the people who were making these decisions didn't seem like the most open-minded people no. or no. thoughtful people. No. And, no. and and because of the, the system that's set up, this is what is happening now and this is what's happening before. And, and now I think it's even worse because they're drugging these kids, at least in the U.S., with all these... I know, uh, I know, that's coming over here, too. So my understanding is that nonviolent communication training is not for kids. It's for the teachers and, yes. for, and for the parents. Because if they communicate differently, the children will copy that automatically. I mean, imagine all the children have learned nonviolent communication, but the teacher is still doing his own... <laughs> This kind of uh, no uh, zero tolerance training. Yeah, the children will go like, "What is this?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he has more power, and so we go that way, of course. So, so then let's let's get into what is the for the listeners because I have listeners sure, who sure. are some of them are Kundalini yogis, but a lot are, are from different walks of life. All right, and and even some Kundalini yogis haven't encountered nonviolent communication. What are what is the basic intention behind nonviolent communication? What, what what was it designed for? I mean, we kind of talked about it a little bit, but yeah, what was it designed for? It was designed to make people happy, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's it the the understanding is that if you realize that everything that you do comes from you trying to. Um, nourish some of your needs to uh to meet some of your needs and that everybody is just everything that they're doing is always trying to meet a need that they have or several needs and that the ways that we try to meet our needs sometimes is very stupid or very uh, strange or very not helpful at all you know but yeah, yeah. Then if you, if you look at the need behind the, the action, the strategy, we call that, if you look at the need behind it, then you have more inner freedom to find a different strategy. So if people are in a conflict, then if both understand what the need is behind the action of the other person, then they have a better chance to find a solution that fits both. Yeah, because... Uh... The other thing that I found really interesting about nonviolent communication, or one of the most interesting aspects for me, yeah. is we we think about communication as, okay, I want to communicate to this person, I want to tell them my intentions, and, and this is good, I want to accomplish something. But I think the most impactful aspect of it is it's really helpful for self-awareness, mm -hmm. because what you're talking about, these needs, 
most people don't understand what they need and they don't understand what they're saying is actually contradicting what they need or yeah. it's it's unconscious to them. And mm-hmm. by using different language, it trains you to look at yourself in a way that is more accurate, I would say, or more understanding right. of the self. And it yeah. takes away a lot of the, the self-judgment, right? That's, that is right. And at the same time, um, I lost the thread. Say again, please. Okay. The the, well, the, the most interesting aspect for me was that it's really about self-awareness because many of your, the things that you're talking about are these projections that you're not aware of, or these unconscious habit patterns or unconscious traumas that you're, you're living. Yeah. And you said before also uh, it's a training. If you use a different language, then it's a training to become more self-aware. Exactly. I agree to that. And at the same time, if it's just the training to use a different language, it will not do the job. It really requires also that you're open to change your view on the world and your your understanding of yourself, that you're open for that. Definitely. and if some people are not because it's too scary for them. It's too scary to come to the point where they would realize that maybe they have lived their whole life only to please the expectations of other people mm. and have totally missed a purpose of their own. You know, and that is so painful. Or they have... Uh, Supported, for example, somebody, uh, they, they married maybe with somebody and they, they adore that person and they realize if they would leave that person because it's very toxic for them, it's not healthy, that relationship is not healthy for themselves and they come to realize that, they would have to realize that already the relationship to their parents was very unhealthy for them. Yeah. And then they would be totally lost and shattered and could not continue their normal life. And so people don't do that. Yeah. They continue their unhealthy way of living in relationships that are unhealthy because if they would get out of that, they would be totally lost. So I understand that people sometimes, to protect themselves from inner chaos, don't want to change their views on things. And on yeah. themselves and on other people. And then they you can put as much nonviolent communication as you want on them. It's <laughs> it not will confuse to. them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it will confuse them and they might try to apply the formal four steps and all that kind of stuff, but uh, it won't make a difference. In, in the contrary, if people just you talk, start talking in the four steps, it drives you crazy. I mean, who wants to listen to somebody who's <laughs> always talking in four steps? Yeah, I mean, there's there's not the emotional connection to the to the truth, right? No. It's a separation of it. Yeah, yeah. And this is one thing that I realized is that it it kind of forced me to look at my habit patterns because you're talking about your needs and go, well, why am I really saying this? Am I trying to manipulate them emotionally, or mm-hmm. am I trying to really get them to understand me? And mm-hmm. I realized a lot mm-hmm. that no, I'm trying to manipulate them mm-hmm. to feel what I'm feeling. You know, because, okay, this is how I grew up and this is my habit patterns for my family. And so you start to to see this and you start to recognize this about yourself. And it's a great way to discover these habit patterns of yourself at the same time learning how to make these great connections with the people that you encounter. Yeah. 
for me, it was like a revelation. I am a person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I am. I exist. And that came together with yoga, of course, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, for me, nonviolent communication actually is yoga in communication. Because it's yeah. about being authentic, being compassionate, being true to yourself, understanding that you are just a being experiencing to be a human being. You know, you're a spiritual being having the experience of a human. And so is everybody else. I discovered not only myself as a person, I discovered everybody else as a person too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I was like, wow, and we're all trying to become happy. <laughs> Everybody's trying to do their best to find out how can I become happy? And we're all trying to serve our needs with that what we have got, you know, with the, with the resources that we've got. But if we do that, how are we going to judge the other? Right? And this exactly, is what people exactly. yeah. <laughs> The other is the same as, as me. Yeah. If, I, if I look at you and I say, yeah, you're a spiritual being too, mm -hmm. having the experience of being a human in this body, wow, I can only say, sablam. Yeah, and, and this is when, right. when we, we talked about the, the social media when people write comments, they're only there to manipulate. You know, mm. like the, the, the comment mm. is, oh, I thought you're a better person than this. Well, this doesn't prove, you know, say anything about what you think. This doesn't yeah. say anything about what you're feeling. It's just trying to make me feel shame or make me feel bad because this is how it's, you it's grew a, Like uh, Marshall Rosenberg would say, it's a tragic strategy for unmet needs. Yeah. No? Like the yeah. strategy is to blame you and to put you down and to shame you and all that. But the need behind is in this person. And the need is to be heard with their own pain and to be understood as somebody who's lonely maybe and, and needs company in the, in the world that he lives in. That, that could all be behind a statement like that, you know? Yeah. Like but, but if, you, if you hear a judgment, if somebody gives you a judgment, the judgment does not tell you anything about yourself. It tells no. you a lot about the person who's giving the judgment. You know? Yeah. Well, then, and, they, then they, they say, oh, I didn't mean to offend you. I said, you can't offend me. What you're saying yeah. has, why would I be offended? I, <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. It, it tells a lot about your, yeah. your, the situation that you are in. But how how do we change that when we have a culture, whether it's through not even social media, but the media? I don't know how it is in Germany, but in the U.S., it's it's incredible, and also the the, the politics where it's us against them. So if you're on this side, anything they say is wrong. And, and okay. we see we saw this with, I mean, Trump. Okay, he's not a great person, and maybe ninety nine out of a hundred things he said were stupid. But he said one or two things that okay, he, we're good, but you can't admit it. Because if you admit it, then you're then we say you like this person, and it's, it's just like well, yeah. So the, it's similar with the Corona situation with the COVID oh, exactly, situation. yeah. You know, mm -hmm. you know, here in Germany, we have like the whole society is split. Yeah. Those who believe what the government says and those who are totally skeptic and say this yeah. is all bogus and uh, and, and yeah, so forth. Yeah. And I find myself in the middle of that. And so what I do is I try to be empathic. I try to be empathic with both sides. When somebody tells me, well, have you read this news? And this is all, they're going to try to kill us all and whatever. You know, that kind <laughs> of stuff. 
Then mm. I go, wow, you're really afraid. And I mean, if this would really happen, this would be really horrible, right? So you're really afraid, my goodness. And you, re you need a reassurance that that kind of stuff is not possible and is not going to be allowed, right? And I'm trying just to be a, a, empathic with that person. And I don't need any position there, you know? Mm -hmm. Because my position is, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what is right. I'm not trying to be right. But how how do you take this? Because it's really not even about the virus. It's a it's because these are the same people. It will pick another topic and they'll do the same thing. They'll be on one side or the other side because they're in the, that political view or they're in this lifestyle or whatever it is. How do we get these people to communicate? How how do we teach this type of communication to society? I mean, it's nice in the yoga community that people are taking your workshops of nonviolent communication, but... Well, it's, by the way, by far not only yogis who take my workshops. No, of course. So, yeah, I, I didn't mean that, but... Uh, but No, really, it's like in every workshop, there's maybe one or two per people who do uh, yoga classes with me, but the rest is from everywhere and I of get course. invited to I get invited to organizations and to uh, NGOs and uh, the church invites me and so I'm really trying to spread uh, this uh, understanding in many areas and I train people I, I offer uh, trainings year-long trainings mm -hmm. and then people go out and they uh, offer their trainings in the, the part of the world where they live Well, it's taught in corporations quite a bit as well, too, right? Yeah. I, I know he did a lot of workshops with corporate uh, in the corporate mm -hmm. environment, and, mm -hmm. and yeah. So I, I think this is a, a, an important part. So, what would you advise someone who's in a relationship uh, how to work on their relationship, work on their communication within the relationship? Yes, it's something like what you said. You mentioned before is this learning to listen. Yeah. Because especially in a relationship where we get very close, after a while we kind of have like a like an image of who the other person is, and we know pretty well where the the weaknesses are, what the strengths are, what the preferences are, what the likes and the dislikes are, and all that. We know that about the person more or less. So we have an image, and we try to, and at the same time we have expectations how this person should react in this situation, how that person should react to me and all that. And so we don't communicate anymore on this level where we see the other person really as unique human being, spiritual being who is having this experience of being a human at every moment. But we kind of force them into that image that we have made of them. And then we don't listen anymore because we already know what they're going to say, right? Right. Yeah. And this is what <laughs> the problem of society and this is, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's the so same then thing. What, what I re when people come to me and want the coaching as, as a couple, for example, then what I ask them to do is one person says, what is the problem in their side, in their uh, point of view? And then I ask the other person to tell back what they understood. And then have the first person check if this is what you wanted to say. And if this person says, yes, this is what I wanted to say, then this person can answer to that or talk about what they see as a problem. And then this person gives back what they understood. And this person can say, yes, this is what I wanted to say. 
So I teach them to listen to each other and to make sure that the other person has been understood. You know? Yeah, it's also, you're talking about they have these preconceived ideas already of what this person is. They put mm-hmm. them in their, 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 their framework of this is their life, this is how they answer this type of question, this is how they mm-hmm. think. Maybe this begins with the self by seeing yourself as limited, right? Is by saying that, I oh, because I, I, I used to see myself as this kind of person or this kind of person. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I had a, a woman on, on the, my podcast who did acro yoga. Mm-hmm. And so every once in a while, I would pick something that's so unlike me and I would do it just so I can see myself differently. And this is one of the things I picked one time is I did this because I, I'm not a, this type of person, but I did it just to, to show myself that I could do something different. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think this is one thing that will help people look at other people in a more human way. Right, the more is to really mm-hmm. open their view of themselves. Yeah. For me, it was more like realizing that I was very much influenced by the way I grew up. I realized my childhood. There were some things that happened in my childhood that were not nice for me, that were really traumatizing for me, and realize how much that shaped the way I looked at life and looked at people and to realize that it took years to really understand that deeply, how my looks on the world were shaped by that. And it was even more, it took even more time to really get out of that and to really identify with this self who I am and to get out of this identification with, I call that my ego. Yes. The, 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 the explanation that I gave myself of who I am. Yeah, the collection of thoughts exactly. of who you think yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, mm-hmm. and the expectations of others and what I thought that I should be and uh, this kind of stuff. To understand I'm not that. And it takes a lot of humility to say, yeah, I did these things and I behaved this way because I had this limited view of myself. And to step behind and kind of laugh a little bit about it, you know, Mm. don't blame myself for it and don't put myself down for it because God, everybody, every one of us has a history. Every one of us has experiences that limited the view on how you see yourself and how you experience life. And... To, to come to that point to understand you are much more than that. It took me, it takes humility. Because before I tried so much to be somebody. Yeah. <laughs> and, yes. to, and by being somebody, there were others who were less than me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh boy. And to understand I'm, there's nobody less than me. And also right. I'm not higher than anybody. And also I'm not lower than anybody. To really understand that. And to come, in, in German, there's this word uh, Augenhöhe, to come to eye level with people. Yeah. Well, that was really a big step. Yeah, it's, a, it's the, the, the first step is acceptance, right? To accept what's, what's happened. Yes. To radical accept, radical yeah. self-acceptance. <laughs> and, and, and this is one of the issues with the communication these days is everyone wants to be a victim, Right. It seems. No, it I seems, don't think anybody. You don't think so? No, 
No, I don't think anybody wants to be a victim. You don't think that? that Well, I I don't think they want to, but I I think in the culture that at least what I'm seeing in the U.S. I haven't really lived here for a long time, so this is a a, maybe an outsider's view. Is that it's almost like you get points for being some victim. I am of this group, and we've been victimized, and so I, I, you know, you can you can say this, and then people. Will will look at you differently, and I, I think. Yeah, people, but that is not really satisfying. It's not you, satisfying, no, but but it seems pity. like it's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's happening, and I'm sure it's happening here too. But it's it's not satisfying, and you will not stay there unless you really get some benefits from that. Yeah, well, but the even benefit then, even then. The, the benefit they're getting is they're they're virtue signaling. They're showing that I am, you know, this person because I yeah. had this experience or had this. Yeah, I, you get some recognition it, for that, and you get some some pity, and you get some uh, maybe you even get some some sympathy and all that. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and that is not going to feed the needs that are behind it. No, be, yeah. well, what it does is does this opposite, like you're saying. What is it doing? It's identifying with something. And it's yeah. saying that this experience is me. Yeah. And all that comes with this experience is my life and yeah. is what I'm going to yeah. live. And yeah. so it's a limiting thing. Yeah. Whenever you associate with any kind of group and you say, I am this group, you're limiting yourself. Even if it's a positive group, you're still limiting yourself because yeah. you say, oh, my, the next thing is, well, my group doesn't do this or my culture, we don't do this or my yeah. ethnic background, we don't do this type right. of profession. Right, right. And I understand that if people need that kind of community and that kind of identity, I am part of this community. That's my identity. Like for me, it was uh, until last year, my identity was I am a Kundalini yoga yogi and I'm a follower of Yogi Bhajan. Yogi Bhajan is my spiritual teacher. And then last mm-hmm. year came out this whole stuff you know what mm-hmm. I'm talking about? Yes. And that mm-hmm. I was crushed. I was crushed because my community and my big father had fallen down. And I, so I have compassion with people who cling to that because I understand they need that. They need a community that gives them that kind of identity because they don't have it inside. They have not found who they really are without that. And that is also it's like it's a part of it's not the whole of them it's a part of them like a child part that is longing for um for a safe world is longing for a wise father is longing for trustworthy community because they yeah. have not experienced that as a child maybe you know yeah, I, I would say that people who have ex- experienced a wise father and a safe, trustworthy community in their childhood, they are not prone to become members of some sort of sect, some sort of community that is like, we are this and the others are bad or something like that. Yeah, and I think it's it's like you touched on also that it's this kind of knowing who you are and being authentic to this. <laughs> because it was interesting when, when this news came out, there were a lot of people who have been in this community for a, a long time. And they stopped wearing their turbans when they heard this. They shaved their beards. They cut their hair. And my question was, who are you doing that for? 
you know, and, and that to me, that was very strange. I, I understand saying, okay, I'm not going to follow these teachings. If that's what you want, I understand that. But when they just changed their their look, they mm-hmm. changed everything. You say, well, who were you really doing that for? Mm-hmm. And, and, and then how authentic were you being to yourself? And maybe this will help you find yourself. Yes. But it, it, that was very interesting. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and it showed a lot of how people see themselves, right? Yeah. It showed how they, they perceive and judge themselves. And their, mm-hmm. you see a lot of their childhood trauma started to come back to them. And, and, exactly, and exactly. This. And in, this, in the way that happened to me too, I didn't take off my turban and I didn't stop teaching yoga because that is my life. Mm-hmm. And that gives me kind of uh, like like a um, halt. I don't know how you say that in English. It gives me like like a support. Support. Yeah. You know, it's like like that's my my form. Yeah. But inside that form, I was melting. I was totally. It, there was chaos inside. I cried for weeks. So my my little one, my little child that I once was and that was so much longing for a safe environment, a safe, wise father community that I could belong to and be part of, was devastated. And it was only two weeks ago that I finally managed in a, in a journey to re- get that little one out of that pit hole that she was in and get her into my heart it's like two weeks ago only and ever since then I really can say wow okay Yogi Bhajan was a human he was just a human he did very good job in delivering the teaching and at the same time he had this other side that Mm. did some horrible stuff that I don't want to have to do anything with right but I can forgive him. He was a human like me. He was not an overhuman, you know. He was not a superhuman. <laughs> no. And this, this is the reaction you saw is a lot of people just. It's also okay. He did this. Everything is bad. Then his teachings are bad. Everything is bad. Yeah, but that's Say, well, not true. It's not yeah, true. Yeah. Well, you just look at your own life. You go. You've never made any mistakes. <laughs> and they go, oh, maybe my mistakes weren't so big. I go. Well, your contribution wasn't as big either. So, so you know. <laughs> exactly. What, 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 Yes, yes. But you have to you you have to yeah. look at there's a karma yeah. exactly. and you have to understand this karma and and uh Yeah. And I also look at the childhood that Yogi Bhajan went through. You mm-hmm. know, as a six year old he was put to learn with the Santa Sada Singh and stayed in the ashram of Santa Sada Singh, who was, in my understanding, must have been a tough, cruel teacher. Yeah. E- extremely cruel. And his aim was really to make diamonds out of these boys. And in the beginning, mm-hmm. Yogi Bhajan once said yeah, there were like hundreds of them, six, seven-year-olds. And at the end, when he was 16-year-old, there were like five of them left. Yeah. And they had become a diamond, yes, but to the price that the other part, the soft part, had totally been pushed to the side. And then when Yogi Bhajan became Yogi Bhajan and had this power that he had, this other side took some of that power and used it for their own needs that had never yeah. been met. For his loneliness, for his, he, ne- he needed the comfort and all that. And he, so that's the way how he took it. Yeah. That's my but, understanding. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and the other thing is too, that we don't think about this, but there's, there's a collective karma that different 
geographic locations have. You know, there's a mm-hmm. karma of India. There's a karma of the people in the United States, a karma of the people in Germany. Mm-hmm. And the, the karmas are very different. They're born in those places to mm-hmm. deal with their karma. And after living, I've lived in India for eight years, and I can tell you the karma that's related to money and sex there is very different than the rest of the world. <laughs> and it's one thing that that you'll notice if you live there for a while and you start to see it, and you can see the common thread of this karma through throughout that society. Yeah, 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 I bet, I bet. It's interesting that you call that karma. I would, I would call it culture and uh, like, uh, yeah, like like traumas that have been given on from one generation to the next. But what what is culture? But the habit patterns of the, of the the the, the group and yeah, the yeah, habit yeah. patterns come from the karma. You know, yeah, I, I can see this way to look at it. I, I totally agree. I totally. Agree. Yeah, I mean, I see this from my own family. I see this from mm-hmm. growing up and, and living in different countries. You start to, you know, I counsel people, mm-hmm. and when you talk to someone, you counsel someone in Spain, and you counsel someone in Germany or U.S., it's very different because of the culture, and then you realize it's because of their karma, and they have this kind of group karma as well. Mm-hmm. So. What are some exercises that, say, a couple that wants to have more intimacy or more or less conflict in the, in their mm-hmm. relationship? Are there some exercises that that you would you can share with the, them to to be able to just do some simple exercises? Because I know this is one thing that was really actually I remember the exercises you gave in the workshop. I, I can't remember the exact exercise. But it was they were all talking with a partner, and it was with someone I, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And it was very hard because you had to be very honest with yourself, and, mm-hmm. and it was very difficult. Mm-hmm. And, and so do you, do you have maybe something you can share with the listeners of, of that they can do in their relationships to try what to— What they can do in their relationships? Well, I mean, we have this concept, the nonviolent communication is built on these four steps, right, or four pillars, you could say— like they have four concepts of four uh, aspects that uh, you can uh, find in every kind of communication. That is the, the observation and then the feelings and the needs and the strategy. The observation is that what you perceive when something is happening, what you observe, and you distinguish that from how you interpret it and how you evaluate it, you know? You keep keep that separate. So the exercise could be take a situation, something that the other person does that bothers you, and write down what is your observation. You know, what is the observation? And you can also write down what you think about that, your interpretation, your evaluation, your judgments, and all that. You can write that down too. It's not so important, but you can write it down so it's out of your head and you were able to express it. Mm. Then go to your heart. When you observe this and you have these thoughts, how do you feel? And write down how do you feel. Like, for example, you feel sad, you feel irritated, you feel disappointed. Maybe you feel lonely, maybe you feel desperate. Whatever, write it down. And if if tears come, wonderful. Let them come. Welcome tears. Hmm. Then connect your feelings to your needs. Because that's where your feelings come from, from your needs, what, what you're missing in that situation. Maybe if you're sad, 
you're missing to be understood. You write that down, be understood. Maybe if you're lonely, you're missing company. Maybe if you're uh, disappointed, you need to be considered. You know, what is the need behind the feeling? Write that down. And there's lists of needs if, in case you're not familiar with needs. It's helpful to learn these needs. That's really something that I recommend my students. Learn mm. those needs by heart <laughs> so, you, <laughs> so you have better connection to them. Mm. And also the feelings, because that gets often confounded with, uh, we call those pseudo feelings. Like, uh, I feel attacked is not a feeling, is a thought. Mm. I think okay. that you're attacking me. And if I think that you're attacking me, I feel scared. You know, that's the, the feeling that I have when I think that you attack me. So you make a list of the observations, the feelings, the needs, and then you try to think how, what would you like the other person to do differently in that situation that you took as an observation? Or maybe it is that you need to understand why is this person doing that? That's another need of yours. Understand, you know? So then a request to the other person could be, can you please explain to me why you did this? You know, for example. Or a request could also be, now that I tell you this, after you tell the person, I mean, they say, uh, I have some, I would like to talk about the situation with you. Are you willing to listen? And if the person says yes, you tell the person, I saw you do this and I feel uh, irritated and I needed consideration or something like that. Then you uh, ask the person, could you tell me back what you just heard me say? Or you could ask the person, are you willing to tell me how you feel about what I just told you? You know, you give a request in the end to the other person. So the other person understands you're taking responsibility for how you're feeling. You're not giving the responsibility how you're feeling to the other person. And you're also taking, in that way, you're also taking away the judgment, right? Instead of Absolutely. saying, yeah. I hate when you do this, you're saying, when you do this, it makes me feel this way. You, what you're doing may be right or wrong, but this is my experience with yes. it. Yes, yeah. And, it, and, and I'm feeling this way because I need this and that. Right. Or because this is important for, this is important for me. And so for me, it would be wonderful if you could change what you're doing. So uh, a request is really an invitation to contribute to my well-being. And what we very often do is we don't ask some, something of somebody else, but we demand. Yeah. Or we order the other person to do that. From now on, you're never going to do that again anymore or something like that. Instead and, of saying... And within that demand is judgment. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And you're not seeing the other person as an as a sovereign being like yourself. Mm -hmm. You're seeing right. the other person as an extension of yourself that you can command. That you can command your hand to go like this, for example. You know? Yeah. You command the other person to be like that. And this I mean, it doesn't work because the other person, their needs for self determination will be totally down if you mm. demand something of them or they get into rebellion and say, yeah. you don't, I'm not going to do it because you're just demanding it. No. You know, but if the other person understands that you want them to contribute to your well-being as an invitation, 
Would you be willing to do this? Because that would be wonderful for me. That is an invitation to the other person to do something which, again, will feed their need to contribute in a meaningful way to life, yes. to make life more wonderful, as Marshall Rosenberg said. Yeah, he, he must have been a great communicator, huh? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, he well, was. Yes, yes, no, of course. I mean, he was a great teacher. He really, he really knew very beautifully how to convey the, the message of nonviolent communication. But I have, I have, honestly, I have seen him communicate with somebody in a way where I thought, Marshall, maybe you should take a beginner's class of nonviolent communication. Well, well, it's it's interesting that you say that because in in a way I I would expect that because if you look at any of the great teachers or writers, yeah. what do they teach or write about? The things that they struggled with the most. Yes, it's, right? that, that's what. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. I mean, he he grew up in a very violent surrounding. Yeah. Not not so much in his own family, but in the neighborhood where he grew up in Detroit with all the, the violence going on in the 30s, that was really a tough time for him. As a Jew, he, had, mm -hmm. he really experienced some really tough time. And he had, the, on the other side, he had this very, very compassionate uh, grandmother and uncle and some people in his family who really taught him how to be very kind and very compassionate. And so he, that was the question that really drove him Where does the violence in the world come from? Yeah. And he wanted to unravel that and find ways how to get out of that. Well, this is the, the benefit of these traumas, right? I mean, we all encounter mm -hmm. them in some way, and, and the, the fortunate people are the ones who can figure out how to get out of them, and they become the experts in them. I guess that's, that's true. <laughs> I, I mean, I can that. tell you that from my own life. I can tell you that from all the people I've talked to in my life, right. that right. whenever you see someone who's good at something, there there, there was a struggle behind that. Oh, yeah. And, and oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, there are some people who just naturally are good at something. But but for the most part, yeah. the people who are, are, are really good writers or teachers, they had to understand all the ways it didn't work to find out the way it does work. And so they become the best teachers. <sighs> And it's just like Thomas Edison, they asked him, you know, you tried to get this light bulb uh, 10,000 times, it's failed. Don't you, aren't you discouraged? He said, why? Well, I found 10,000 ways it doesn't work. I'm getting closer you exactly. know, to finding the way it works. <laughs> exactly. and, and, and this is the thing is you become the yeah. expert. You yeah. know, if, if, you, yeah. if you go to work every day and you turn your computer on and it works as soon as you start it up, and then the person sitting next to you, every time they turn on their computer, it It doesn't work, so they have to figure out how to fix it to get it, their job done. After a year of that, who's the expert in the computer? Exactly. Right? Exactly. The yeah. person who had all the problems. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So so let me go back to that uh, exercise okay. that you were asking because oh, it's okay, not finished. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so that I would, I would suggest to them to write that down and mm -hmm. then to sit before they sit together that to also – put themselves in the shoes of the other person and write the same down for the other person, what they think that probably the other person observed, how the other person probably felt, how the other person, what the other person probably needs. And then add the, the question, is that 
am I seeing you, am I understanding you right? You know, and then when they've done that, that, then sit together and start to talk about this. You know, first connect to your own feelings and needs, then connect to the feelings and needs of the other person as you think they might be. And that, that is really, really good exercise because normally we have very quickly, we have a, a stupid explanation for what the other person did, or we have the explanation the other person is just lazy or just uh, mm. crazy or uh, bad or whatever. And that's not true. That is not right. true, you know, to look at the good reason behind something the other person did that you didn't like. You know, this is the other person is not bad, it's just trying to fulfill some needs of theirs in that way. And maybe mm -hmm. if you talk about it, that person is willing to change that way. Yeah, that's possible. And, so, and maybe you can help them understand what the, their needs are that they don't or they aren't aware of as well. Exactly, exactly. So the, this is what it is all about, really understand the feelings and the needs of the other one, and then come to first your own and then of the other person, and then try to find a solution that fits both. Yeah. That is really the, that is the most simple way. And so in your family, your relationships, your communication must be really good because Satya is, is such a relaxed person. I, I, I don't think I've ever <laughs> seen him, you know. Oh, he could become very angry. Oh, my goodness. Okay, I haven't seen that aspect of him. <laughs> no, no, no. He wouldn't show that in the public. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh. No, but uh, in the beginning, um, it was funny because after about two years when I was going to uh, the workshops with Marshall Rosenberg, I really, I mean, I changed, I guess. And mm -hmm. he, one day he said, wow, all the good arguments are on your side now. I think I must, <laughs> I must uh, rearm. <laughs> and so he went to take some classes with Marshall Rosenberg also and some other things. Mm. And that was really good for our relationship. That has and, changed and also, that. you have children, right? Uh-huh. And and so they grew up with this form of communication? Yeah, they did. But when I started doing that, when my daughter was like seven years old or something like that, and my son was four years old. So in right in the beginning, I was still more, a little more violent, I guess. I didn't beat <laughs> them and I didn't scold them, but I tried to force them in the ways that I thought were right. Uh -huh. And I apologized to them. <laughs> and, and now their communication is like yours, the nonviolent communication. They study this or? No, they didn't. Well, they did study it too. They came to my mm -hmm. classes and uh, studied it too a bit. But for them, it's more natural. For them, yeah, it's much yeah. more natural to just be aware of their needs and the needs of other people. They're naturally compassionate. I, I'm really in awe when I see that. Very really, nice. Very, very grateful for that. Very nice. Well, I, I feel that we can probably talk for hours. Yeah. Communication is one of my favorite topics, and I, I know it's yours as well. So that's why I was excited to have you on this podcast. Thank you. Um, and I thank you for sharing this with me. It was really nice. And with the listeners, hopefully they'll get something out of it. If they haven't heard about nonviolent communication, they can. I have many listeners in Germany, so they can go, because I know you said you give workshops only in German. Right. And, and so, but there, there are other people who are giving them in English. And so where can we send the people who speak German, who want to attend some of your workshops? We have, uh, let's see, your yeah. website. Yeah. 
my website, they will find uh, plenty of workshops because I work together with a few other trainers. We have an institute, mm -hmm. Hamburger Institute für Gewaltfreie Kommunikation, and we offer big, uh, many different kinds of uh, workshops. And um, for people who don't speak German and just international, there's the international page, uh, Center for Nonviolent Communication, cnbc.org. Okay, so we have your website is higfk.de. Right. And then you can contact... Simran Carr, and she does the workshops, of course, on nonviolent communication, but you also do the 21 stages of meditation course every year. And this website is 21-stages.de. And that's another way to contact her in the training. And then the Center for Nonviolent Communication, which is the international website. So in any country you're in, it's CN vc.org right and you can learn more and even just as a good start you can get the book the book that marshall uh, wrote is is a great book and it's a good place to start you could get on amazon it's a quite uh, inexpensive book but it's a great book to read and it, it's it's uh, there's a lot of nice examples in there so you could understand them but i really appreciate your time And thank you for joining us. And, and maybe another time we'll talk about communication. We'll have another topic. You come back on the program. Great. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> thank you very much, Amajit. It was my pleasure. I'd like to tell you about Sing Flutes. These are flutes that are made by me. They're handcrafted Native American style flutes designed for sound healing. The flutes are tuned to the frequency of 432 hertz, the harmonic intonation of nature. The fundamental note of each flute is in a key to vibrate a particular chakra. Whether you are playing for others or yourself, listening to 432 hertz music resonates inside the body. In fact, they did a medical study where they hooked people up to a brain and heart monitor and played different instruments to them. The Native American style flute had the most impact in relaxing them. If you're a yoga teacher, it's a great instrument to incorporate into your classes. What I do is I have an app on my iPad that has the sounds of nature, and I'll put on the sounds of rain and play over this to the students at the end of the class. It's a very intuitive instrument to play. There's no musical knowledge necessary to get started. Each flute is unique since they're handmade. I put different artwork on them. I put mantras on them related to the chakras that they're tuned to. So go check them out at singflutes.com, S-I-N-G-H-F-L-U-T-E-S.com. Use the discount code The Story of Me Podcast and get 10% off. All right, that was our program today. I hope you enjoyed the show. I had a lovely conversation. I really enjoyed speaking with Simran Carr. I thank her for joining me on the podcast today. And please continue to support the podcast by rating and reviewing it on iTunes, and sharing it with a friend. If you know someone you think would benefit from this, share it with them. And you can go to the storyofmepodcast.com and on the contact page, you can make a donation. There's a donate button and you can help support the expenses of the show. And I will leave all the contact information for Simran Carr for nonviolent communication in the episode notes.
Until the next time, from the podcast that awakens your inner power through awareness and understanding, allow love to be the current that carries your words and actions. Why?